Hey everyone, it's Kimberly Austin. Welcome to another episode of Rock Book Show. We're very pleased to welcome this week's guest, Jim Rulin, author of the excellent new book, Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. Now, if you're a fan of Black Flag, Husker Du, Sonic Youth, Soundgarden, or Dinosaur Jr., you probably know that SST was the label that helped those bands happen, but you probably haven't heard the whole story of the label. Until now. Jim's a master historian of the SoCal punk scene, and his book is a highly entertaining and informative deep dive into this legendary label. And even if you aren't a fan or don't know anything about SST, Jim is such a great writer that you're sucked into this story of this iconic label. So let's get right into it. Here's Jim. The book is called Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records. And this was really the way for Black Flag to start to get their music out there. Is that where you would say it really started? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was it was a tool. The label began as a tool for the band to be able to put out its own records. You know, the the Black Flag initially was hoping to put out the first EP with Bump, and it was bump dragging its heels and not getting the material out in a timely manner that caused Greg in and, and the rest of the band to say, you know, we're going to do this ourselves. So Ginn is really the catalyst for, for all of this. And along the way though, he starts signing these amazing bands. Like when you look at the list of artists on SST records, it's stunning. It really is. And, you know, from the ones that, that broke out and also the ones that didn't right away, but are now highly regarded, uh, it's, it's really remarkable, um, Gin's ear for, for what was going on. I mean, and it makes sense because, you know, after, you know, not being able to break into LA properly, Black Flag took its show on the road. And then when the demand for uh, for shows in LA was there, it was stymied again by the LAPD. So Black Flag was constantly traveling and wherever they went, they kept their antenna up for other venues, other scenes, other bands that were doing like-minded things. It was, it was not, uh, you know, I think some people in LA thought that SST was its own clique apart from what was going on in Hollywood, but it was really open to what was going on throughout the country. The um and when I wanted to go back to um also when we, when you were talking about Gin and and the ear of these guys, so it was it that they were savants in a way, or were they oftentimes also just a little bit lucky? Well, that's one of the things I take away from it is that you know in the in the early eighties, you know, with with American punk and hardcore taking off in california and in parts of the midwest you know later than it did obviously in new york and in england like how many bands that were making good music but floundered for lack of the support of like an sst for example um they it's not i'm not saying that sst was not discriminate in the contracts that they gave because they were um, there are definitely some stories in the book about bands that would have definitely changed, you know, the, the history of SST if they'd signed them or, or stuck with them longer. But um, I often think about, like, you think about a band like St. Vitus, for example, which was some people consider in at the time a backyard band. 
a band that was in S literally in SST's backyard from the South Bay and and playing around the South Bay of LA and on some occasionally in Hollywood went on different tours with Black Flag and other SST artists didn't get a lot of do at the time but are now regarded as one of the godfathers of, of doom metal like of the slower sludgier sound um that electrified so many other fans and probably played a role in um in the seattle sound the sound of the northwest um you know in, in the late 80s and early 90s so um I'm curious to know well, how many other bands were out there that just, you know, were doing interesting things but didn't benefit from SST. And how many bands that were signed to SST but never got the music released? Yeah, I mean, there were often long delays, like St. Vitus again. You know, they would record something, it would be a year and a half before it come out. It happened to the Meat Puppets. It happened to the Stains. Uh, all those bands eventually did get their records come out, but like in the Stains example the la band from boyle heights uh the band broke up by the time the record was out so it was a little too little too late yeah and just to remind everyone some of the names of the sst artists so we have dinosaur jr screaming trees um soundgarden black flag of course bad brains the minutemen husker do and then later sonic youth and that's a really interesting story yeah i think what's interesting about sonic youth is that they really pursued sst uh they really wanted to be a part of that label they identified sst as uh as doing something really cool they, they had had experience with other indie labels you know for example um uh homestead i believe they were on but um, but Homestead wasn't a true indie in that it was a, a subsidiary of a of a larger company. So they really liked what SST was all about and how it was you know SST you know was every band on SST was one record at a time, one record. You know there was never there weren't multi album contracts, and there was support, but it was also not a lot of meddling in terms of like oh you can't put this on your cover. And that actually kind of, you know, bit SST in the ass a couple of times because, and especially with Sonic Youth, because Sonic Youth would was in favor of like these, like I'm thinking of uh, the cover of Sister, which is a collage art of different photographs, some of which they did not have the rights to use and were promptly, uh, you know, given a cease and desist by the artists who were like, hey, that's my photograph. You didn't ask for, and you don't have it. So, Please stop. <laughs> Whoops. At its height, how influential would you say SST was? Well, that's really hard to gauge because I think that, you know, as one of the things that I think I'm still learning today about the influence of SST was the people who were able to develop a relationship with indie music, even though they did not go to a college that had a, a hip college radio station or they did not live in a big city or even a mid-sized city that had a cool record store or venues where bands would play people that you know lived in rural areas or smaller communities that were far away from record stores and venues were able to become fans of this music because of sst's extraordinary mail order operation and that every time you ordered a, a record from SST, it would come, you know, with a catalog and an order form for more. 
And once you were on that mailing list, SST was really good about sending flyers, additional catalogs, all, all before there were such things as databases and things where, you know, you can't sign up these days for an email without being bombarded by the, by them almost, you know, on a daily basis. Um, back then, it was really like a lifeline for a lot of people to indie culture. And, and I think that came from, you know, again, you know, being just very uh, savvy about these things. I mean, this is someone who read about punk rock. A lot of people in, in California, the first time they heard about punk rock, they read about it in a, in a newspaper or a magazine, which is today almost unfathomable, right? You know, to think like, here's a style of music where you can only read about it, maybe see a photo. I mean, of course, it would create this kind of curiosity. And, uh, and so Gin understood that there was a real need for that and was outstanding at fulfilling that need. Well, that's what's amazing, too. You've got all these great artists. You've got all this savvy. You've obviously got a lot of drive behind all of this and vision. And yet you run into these roadblocks, whether it's the finances or the distributors. And the distribution problems was really fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, it really is everything. It's punk rock. Things don't go as planned, right? That's that's. I mean, even if you're just trying to throw a show in your neighborhood, you're going to run into these things today in 2022. I mean, no matter what it is, it's just punk rock and problems go hand in hand. And I think that uh, my opinion is that, you know, Ginn was so professional in the way that he ran his business, you know, especially at the onset. And everywhere he turned, he encountered a lack of professionalism, whether it was from a perceived lack of professionalism from zines and, you know, people recording things, reporting things that weren't, that he felt weren't true. Whether it was lack of professionalism from promoters, overselling shows, selling too many tickets than than people could get in. Um, Whether it was lack of professionalism from the media, making stories up, telling lies about his band, distributing, distributing disinformation about Black Flag as a, as a, as a bunch of violent thugs, uh, lack of professionalism from the police who certainly weren't protecting or serving when they showed up at punk rock shows in LA. And it just continued to go on and on and on from his dealings with Unicorn, that Unicorn did not behave in the way that it said it would. It did not pay out the money that it, that it was said it was owed. Distributors did not frequently stiffed SST records. So there was a long laundry list you know, if you're Greg in and imagine like these, all these things all being done to him and his company, um, it's pretty easy to see how he would become resentful about the way things not turning out they were supposed to. And that also makes a lot of sense of the way you set up the book with SST versus, you know, MTV, SST versus, and SST versus Negative Land was actually an amazing chapter. If you want to give us some highlights from that, Jim, I think that'd be great. Well, sure. I mean, the the first part for structuring it that way, I, I wanted to highlight the fact that, um, I mean, SST is re- regarded as, as a one of the bigger indie labels. And so there's a lot of myths that crop up about, um, you know, labels that are, you know, large, not just basement operations. And, and I just wanted to emphasize how nothing was handed to this label and how SST had to f- claw and fight for for everything that it had and still 
missed out on so many different opportunities. So I, I wanted to to make that clear that it was that nothing was ever handed to this label. Uh, the reason why I focused on on negative land that aspect of, was for two reasons because it had and it, this goes into why I chose the different bands to spotlight is because not so much how did the label influence the band but how did the band then shape the history of the label and unfortunately negative land had a very negative impact on SST because you know, through no, no fault of its own. Uh, in the sense that SST sued the band and the band countersued SST. So there was a lot of uh, animosity between the two and uh, that got a lot of attention. Negative Land had this reputation as these kind of outsider artists who would do things with found audio and collage and radio manipulation and really doing very experimental music. I would say some stuff music that was outside of rock and roll. They weren't a band that, that toured, for example, in the conventional sense. And yet when Escape from Noise, its, its debut album on SST came out, it sold an incredible amount of copies, something like 35,000 copies was one of the numbers that, that, that I saw that uh, um, reported. Which, which just kind of speaks to like, this was SST at the peak of its popularity in the late 80s. Uh, in the early 90s, Negative Land submitted uh, a, an EP. It was really just a seven inch and it was like a song that should be in quotation marks around uh, that used U2, still haven't found what I'm look, looking for. And outtakes from a hot mic recorded of Casey Kasem running down you two and and cursing, and and acting in a way that most people probably had never heard Casey Kasem speak on the air. Well, that attracted a lot of attention, a lot of legal attention, and within weeks of that EP coming out, that seven inch coming out, um, Island Records uh, was suing, uh, had issued a cease and desist um upon sst and caused all kinds of legal problems and unfortunately sst responded by counters by suing uh, its own artist which is kind of a big no-no one of the things that sst did is they had this slogan called corporate rock still sucks and i think it was at this moment when sst sued its own artist that they started to really act more like a corporate entity than um, this, you know, indie outsider, weirdo cool. And it was a, a wake up moment for people, for fans and artists, but also the media, because the media was were not big fans of Negative Land because they were constantly, you know, flouting them and tweaking them, right? If you, if you had a call with Negative Land, you might end up in a future Negative Land piece. So, the media was very wary of the band, but yet still sided with the band in its conflict with SST. So I think that's kind of the uh, jump the shark moment when SST, uh, you know, stopped being, you know, the, the cool indie label and started being something else. Wow. The um, SST is still around today. How would you describe the state of SST today? Um, well, I mean, it's a place where you can, you know, get 
you know, it, it's basically a website it's where you can buy CDs and tapes and records of not all of its catalog, but some. Over the years, many of the artists that you've mentioned have sued uh, to, um, or lobbied to get its work back, uh, you know, get the rights back to its own work. So um, the, the list of artists is not as long as it once was, but there's still plenty of artists on there. Not all of the work, all of it is available though, which is somewhat mysterious. Um, but um, I was recently told that Black Flag is gearing up for some, uh, for some shows this summer uh on the festival circuit so uh so we'll see what what the future of sst holds um thurston moore talked about how SS, one of sst's downfalls as well was starting to just sign people he didn't feel were worthy of the label would you agree with that well absolutely um and there were other people that i talked to um who were reported meeting up with thurston saying hey guess what we're on sst and Thurston not really being thrilled by the news. Uh, um, I'm speaking of a quote from Jim Thompson from Alternatives. And it was interesting because SST signed, uh, Alternatives were kind of like a, um, a jam band from Richmond, Virginia, and uh, not punk, uh, all of extremely talented musicians, um, alternative music, maybe even experimental. And what was interesting about uh, that is that it was SST had also signed another jam band from Richmond, Virginia. And uh, so it was, it's kind of uh, unusual that, um, that there would be two. SST, they absolutely deserve their place in music history. Yeah, the legacy of, of SST is, is, is incredible. And one question that gets asked a lot is that, you know, are they the biggest, or the most important, or this or that? But I think the most important thing is that there's never going to be another SST. There'll be a, there will never be another label like it. I think that SST was, you know, one of the the biggest independent record labels during the um, the album era, which I think is drawing to a close. I think in a few years we'll realize it already happened that we're now in a song-based music industry again kind of like back where we were in, in the 50s and early 60s and that it went into an album-based um industry in the 70s and 80s and um and 90s and at some point in the 21st century with streaming we have uh, shifted back to a song-based um format so i i don't see how there could ever be another record label like sst and I wonder if it's, you know, was it just that time as well? You know, is there something about the pre-internet era that also helped to it in its advantage, to its advantage? Yeah. And I really think it was like a lot of like the right place at the right time. I think that if, you know, if Greg Ginn had been, uh, you know, an amateur radio enthusiast from New Jersey or, you know, outside of London, it it wouldn't have had the same effect. I think, you know, the fact that he that he was playing his music and starting a band after he had already graduated from college in Southern California and had learned uh, about, you know, how to run a small business, you know, through his electronics company and was watching this new style of music explode and wanted to be a part of it, I think um, was, is a huge part of it. If, if he's, if all those things don't happen there in the late seventies, then, um, the whole history of 
of Hermosa Beach and the influence of Hermosa Beach and independent rock and roll is, is completely rewritten. Yeah, Hermosa Beach, definitely on the map of rock history, for sure. And this is actually the third book in a series, right? Yeah, it's more like an unofficial series. The other two work, were worked for hire because I was hired by Keith Morris to work on My Damage and hired by Bad Religion to do do what you want. Uh, this one was completely my own, so uh, the, much more nerves about you know how it would be received and how it would roll out and all of that. How'd the process go? Um, there were so many fascinating things that I learned uh, with every conversation. Um, the zines, reading interviews with bands and personalities, you know, from the very early '80s, I was really struck uh, by the candor, you know, of some of the people involved because, you know, I was not there for a lot of these early shows, right? I was, I graduated high school in 86. So I was not someone who would have been the same age as the performers or even, you know, in the, in the audience, I was, I was too young. Right. But, um, so I had heard so much about a lot of black, black flag in particular, I knew by reputation before I knew, you know, much about the band and started reading it. So, once I started getting into these zines and just saw like, this is what we're about. This is what we're doing. This is what we're going to do next. I was like, wow, they really were just laid it all out there. Yeah. Who would have thought that zines would be a true historical monument to certain music genres? I mean, they really are trees that we, we need. We need those recollections. Yeah. And uh, growing up reading, you know, being part of the zine culture, writing for Flipside in the 90s, and I still write for Razor Cake. I've written for just about every issue. And I was that was really important to me to make sure that the, the quote-unquote kids who got in the van and interviewed the bands um, and made their zines got credit for that. Um, it, it's really important stuff that they did. I think that's amazing. You know, write, good writing is good writing, right? And, well, and sometimes it isn't even all that great. It's just a matter of asking the right question at the right time. You know, I, I'm pretty sure that some of these kids were baffled by some of the responses that they got, you know, whether, you know, a hostile reaction or just, you know, being really appreciative of, you know, having you know, any kind of attention whatsoever. Um, where are you on social media? Where can people find you? Uh, I'm at uh, Jim Vermin on uh, Twitter and Instagram, and uh, I'm I'm not really on Facebook. I'm just there for kind of like research purposes and to be able to talk to people. Um, and um, and I also have a, a weekly newsletter on Substack called Message from the Underworld. Cool. And any other projects you want to let us know about? Uh, yeah, I'm currently working on a book with Evan Dando of the Lemonheads. And uh, that's been really fascinating. And I have a, a novel coming out from Rarebird uh, Books called Make It Stop. And it's kind of a dysfunctional vigilante story that, that's punk adjacent. I'm not going to lie and tell you it's a punk story, but there are punk bands, there are punk rockers in it. I mean, it's a dysfunctional story. So, of course, you're going to have some punks in there. I love that. That sounds so cool. I'm putting that on a pre-order as soon as I can. <laughs> Is it going to be up for pre-order anytime soon? Uh, very soon. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I just signed the contract today. So. Oh, congratulations. That's awesome. It's been in the works for a long time, but it, it's, uh, but it's 
it's finally happening. That must feel amazing. Writers have to be a bit of a patient soul, don't you? Oh, yeah. I mean, you really do. Um, so my motto is to kind of celebrate everything because, you you know, you just never know like when the right time to do it is. Are you supposed to celebrate when you sign the contract or when the book comes out or, you know, or when it gets reviewed? So I just I just celebrate it all. <laughs> That's the spirit. I love that. <laughs> All right. Well, before we run out of time, I'll let you go. But thank you so much, Jim. This has been incredible. I really appreciate you being here. And please feel free to come back anytime. Oh, well, thank you, Kimberly. I'd love to do that. So that's another episode of Rock Book Show in podcast form. Special thanks to Jim Rulin for taking the time to chat. And as he mentioned, Jim has some more books in the works. So I'm sure you'll see him back here on another episode. Look for Corporate Rock Sucks, The Rise and Fall of SST Records on Hachette Books, wherever cool rock books are sold. If you enjoyed this one, we hope you'll subscribe to our show and tell your rock book loving friends. We're dropping new episodes every two weeks, and we've got a great slate of guests scheduled for future shows. Please follow us at Rock Book Show on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok for more chat about great rock books. Our theme music is by Dash Coombs. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks.